You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. Well, my name is Greg Carter, and I'm the worship pastor here. And uh, today I'm going to teach as we continue this series called Someone Else's Shoes. Now, in this series, we've been looking at, at stories of people throughout Scripture to see what we can glean from their testimonies, to see what we can learn from their lives. And today we're going to look at the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth. This book, the book of Ruth, is only four chapters. It takes about 15 minutes to read. It's this interesting mix of tragedy and romance, of, she said, woo, comedy and drama. And some people consider it to be one of the greatest short stories of all time. As I was looking into this, I kept seeing uh, descriptions and quotes by scholars and academics, and they would say things like, the book of Ruth may arguably be the best short story of all time. Or they would say, from the Jewish perspective, it may be the loveliest uh, love story of all time, the greatest love story of all time. So that made me curious, like, what makes for a good story? Like, what are the elements? What does a good story consist of? When you look under the hood of a great story, what is it made of? What is needed? Right? Do you need good characters? Do you need good pacing, uh, the right amount of tension and resolve? What makes for a good story? And this question led me on a journey for the last month or so. I've been looking into the structure of story and the history of story analysis and even the art of screenwriting and movie scripts. And as I was looking into all this, I kept coming across this concept called the three-act structure. Have you guys heard of this? Go ahead and put that on the screen. Yeah. The three, this is this um, narrative model that divides the story into three parts, act one, act two, and act three, also known as the setup the build, and the resolution. And there's all these story beats and plot points and and guidelines that uh, guide you through the story. And screenwriters, people who write movies, are hyper aware of all these plot points and these story beats. They have it all mapped out. They have it down to a science. And most of the movies we watch fit within some variation of this three-act structure. What I found interesting as I was looking into the story of Ruth I was amazed over and over again at how the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth, seemed to hit every story beat and plot point. It fits perfectly within the three-act structure, even though it was written hundreds of years before people started studying the structure of story. So today, we're going to look at this well-crafted story of Ruth, and we're going to walk in her shoes for a bit. And I'm hoping by the end... I'm hoping we walk out with maybe a slightly better idea of what makes for a good story. And I'm hoping that maybe we have some new insight and a fresh perspective about the stories that we are telling and the testimonies that we are living as we walk through this life in our own pair of metaphoric shoes. So let's start with Act 1. Let's go ahead and get the picture up for, for Act 1. I chose this black and white picture of, of Moab, that's our location, because this first act is so dreary and gloomy. And also, I was inspired by The Wizard of Oz. The first act of The Wizard of Oz is in black and white, and then as soon as they get to the second act, the movie turns to color. Do you guys remember that? 
Well, in the first act of a story, the author needs to give the audience a bunch of information. Not just the names of, of characters and how they're related to each other, but also the backstory and the location and the time period. And if you're a bad writer, this can be boring, right? Just a bunch of boring information, names and places. But in the book of Ruth, the author gets right to it. He is concise with his exposition. And again, this is called the exposition. It's when we introduce all the characters, the time period, the location. He is concise. He is economic with his words. In just five verses, he gives us all of the necessary information. So here's the exposition. So as far as time period, he says this story takes place in the time when judges ruled. So maybe about 1200 BC, this is the time in Israel when there's no king and people lived in chaos. It was a spiritually dark time for Israel. And he gives us a location. The author gives us a location. He says there was a famine in the land of Bethlehem. And so that's the location. He introduces us to uh, one of the main characters, and that is a woman named Naomi. And he says that Naomi and her family, her husband and her two sons, have left Bethlehem because of the famine. There's no food. And so they go to live in a foreign land named Moab. And so that's the backstory. And altogether, that's the exposition. And by the way, this is all in the, the diagram in your bulletin. You can, if you want to, check as we go through that three-act structure. But notice in the exposition, well, right away, the author does not introduce us to Ruth. Not right away, at least. He first introduces us to Naomi because she plays a big part in this story, and her story will be woven together with the, th- the story of Ruth. And so we have Naomi and her husband, two sons, they're in Moab. And shortly after arriving there, Naomi's life falls apart. Her husband passes away. He dies somehow, leaving her there alone in a foreign land with two sons, but, but she stays in Moab. And her sons eventually marry two Moabite women, and their names are Ruth and Orpah. And so they were introduced to Ruth. And altogether, they're there for 10 years, and then we are informed that Naomi's two sons die as well. Somehow they pass away. So now all of the men in the family have died. Naomi's husband, Orpah's husband, Ruth's husband. And in the structure of story, this is called an inciting incident. You can see it on the diagram, inciting incident. It is a disruption in life. It's an unfortunate event that disrupts your old way of life forcing the characters to somehow figure out a new way of life. I imagine for some of you in here, you can immediately think of an inciting incident that has occurred at some point in your life, maybe even recently. You know, an unfortunate event that disrupts your old way of life, forcing you to figure out a new, a new life and to go on that journey. This story is about two women who have just experienced a tragic, inciting incident, and now they are trying to figure out a new life. Their life has been settled. They're trying to figure out this puzzle, this puzzle and it'll take them the rest of the story to figure it out. 
But this is the inciting incident of the story. Uh, There's a scene when Naomi is heading back to Bethlehem. She's been gone for 10 years, but she's had too much. She can't take anymore. She's going back to her people, going back to her homeland. And the two daughters-in-law are following her. Ruth and Orpah are tagging along, these, these three widows, all grieving, all walking towards Bethlehem. And amidst her pain, Naomi stops and she starts reasoning with the two younger women. She says, don't follow me. I, I can't provide for you. I have nothing to offer you. Go back to Moab. Go back and start a new life. Go find a husband. And by the way, in this story structure, this is the part called second thoughts in which the characters have to consider whether they are up for the journey that's ahead of them. And so as, they st- as they're in the crossroads of this decision, the author says they cried together and they wept together. These three women bonded. They shared loss and pain together and burial together. But Naomi made a good point. And so eventually Orpah kisses her mother-in-law goodbye and she heads back to Bethlehem, leaving just Naomi and Ruth. And as Orpah is walking away, this is what Ruth says on the screen, verse 16. Ruth says, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if even death separates you and me. And she's saying, I'm willing to leave my people, my hometown, my religion, and I'm ready to follow you, and your God will be my God. She's leaving her old life behind, and she's stepping into a new season, a, a new chapter, maybe even a new act of her story. And so Naomi and Ruth, they travel through the desert on the way to Bethlehem, 50 miles through the desert paths and the rocky paths. And I imagine they didn't talk very much, both hurting, both beaten down by life, but they kept moving. They kept progressing. They didn't quit. They didn't just fall to their knees and dissolve to a whimpering pile of sadness. They didn't collapse under the weight of their grief. They kept moving and they kept walking on their journey to Bethlehem. And as they walked and as they moved forward, that leads us into the climax of Act 1. This is the climax of Act 1. As they arrive in Bethlehem, it says the whole town was stirred. They recognized Naomi. It had been 10 years, but they still remembered her. And they see Naomi and Ruth walk into town. And the women come out and they're like, is that Naomi? Is that Naomi? And by the way, the, the name Naomi means pleasant. It means pleasant. So it's kind of like, is that Naomi? Is that, is that little Miss Pleasant? Is that Naomi who lit up a room with her smile? What you doing up in here with your pleasant self? Surprised to see her. And Naomi responds. She said, don't, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Call me Mara because I see the world now through a lens of bitterness. Call me Mara because I'm consumed with bitterness, a dark cloud of, of anger. There's clouds in my mind. 
not pleasant anymore. You knew me when I was a when I was a wife and I had a husband and I had two kids and a farm and I was younger and life was beautiful. There's so much potential, so much possibility ahead. But now I'm empty and I'm bitter and I'm angry and I'm depressed. I'm all those things and more, but I'm not pleasant. That name no longer represents me. You know, this is what she said. Um, as written in scripture on, on the screen, Ruth chapter 1, verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. As I was looking into what makes a good story, you know, I was curious, what makes for a good character? What makes a character relatable so that, you know, there's something about them that pulls us in so that we actually care about them as a person? And I kept coming across this concept called a core wound. You know, screenwriters would say any good story, any good movie should have the character should have some kind of core wound or core flaw. Something that is rooted deep with inside them. Maybe something painful from their past that shapes their present. Something that influences their behavior. It's a wound that they have to overcome. And part of what makes a compelling story is that we get to see this character, this person overcome that wound we get to see the, the gradual transformation as they go through the stages of transformation and change throughout the story and hopefully somehow overcome that wound. And that process of change is called the character arc. The character arc, which is this internal personal change that happens within the character throughout the story. And so from here on, we get to watch as Naomi and Ruth as they go through the stages of this transformation arc, this character arc, as they change, as they grow, as they step beyond their bitterness, we get, we get to watch if they can just keep walking and keep moving. This leads us to act two. So act two, uh, normally with an act change, just like the Wizard of Oz, the setting will change, and sometimes the color. So let's get that other picture up here. <clears throat> setting change. We're now in Bethlehem. It's harvest season. There's lots of barley and grain. It's a good time. No longer a famine. And also during Act 2, it's called the build or the ascending action because now that we've been introduced to the characters, we want to see the story go somewhere. We want to see um, the romance flourish we want to see the action build. We want to see the tension ramp up. And so here we're in Bethlehem, and Naomi and Ruth are there during harvest season. Naomi still has her house. It's been 10 years. She still has her property and her old farmhouse, but it's all dried up and abandoned, and there's no men to work on the property. 
And so she just goes back to her home and she wallows in her sadness and she cries and she's bitter and she's angry. But here's what I like about Ruth. You know, because Ruth is mourning as well. Ruth lost her husband, but Ruth keeps moving. She keeps walking one step at a time. She keeps pressing on. She keeps momentum. And Ruth goes outside and she goes gleaning in the fields around town. She decides to glean. And if you don't know what gleaning is, it's something from the Old Testament that says, the Old Testament law, that says that farmers should, should leave some of their crop and their harvest out in the field so that the poor and the needy and the widows can come and pick up the scraps. There's a way of taking care of the poor and the widows. And so Ruth goes out and she's gleaning and it's still hard work and it still takes her all day and she's collecting scraps that were left over. You know, she just keeps moving. She keeps walking. And that momentum leads her into the field of Boaz. You know, as she's moving, she stumbles into the field of Boaz. And Boaz is our third main character. Uh, Boaz is this local guy of Bethlehem. He's respected in the community. He's noble. He's godly. He's handsome. I'm picturing that. I'm picturing him being handsome in a rugged kind of way. Picturing he rolls up his uh, sleeves and he has those, those nice forearms of a guy who's been doing like a work all day. And he sees Ruth out in his field. He owns the field. And he's like, who is that? Where does she come from? And the workers of the field tell him, you know, that is the Moabite who came back with Naomi. And she's been working in the field all day. She's barely taking a break. And so Boaz walks over to her and he starts talking to her and he says, I've heard about your story. I've heard about what you've been through and how you're taking care of your mother-in-law. I heard that your husband passed away and I heard that you left your people and your land and your religion and that you're living amongst these people that you don't know. But he says that you are now under the wings of the God of Israel and you will be taken care of here. And then he proceeds to take care of her. He says, Ruth, stay in this field. Don't go anywhere else. And when you're thirsty, you know, drink from my water jars. And I'll make sure that no men lay a hand on you. And I'll make sure that you have plenty of food. And so in the ascending action, in the build of Act 2, um, this shows up as kind of a dating sequence. There's elements of a romance, or maybe even a romantic comedy. In the very next scene... I see it as a date. I see it as a dinner date. He invites her to a meal and they have roasted grain and bread with wine vinegar dip. That's what it says. That fancy dip that you, uh, you dip your bread in, that's a date. And it says that she ate all that she wanted and she even brought home leftovers and then he gave her more food as well. And so she goes home later that day with all this food and she tells Naomi about what happened. You know, she's like, I, there's this guy, and his name was Boaz, and we went on this, this dinner date, and there was this fancy dip for your bread. He owns the fields. And Naomi is listening, and she's taking it all in, and she's starting to see a glimmer of hope. At this point, we're at the midpoint of the story. And usually at the midpoint, there's a slight twist 
or a revelation of new information that propels the story forward in a new way. And so here Naomi gives some new information. In this scripture on screen, Ruth, chapter 2, verse 20, this is what Naomi says. The Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And then here's the new information. She said, that man Boaz is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. All right, he's so, this means he's a relative of Naomi's late husband. And therefore, according to Old Testament law, he has, uh, he's, he's in line to buy the property and to redeem the land and to take care of the widows. That's what a guardian redeemer is. It's a close relative who can choose to purchase the land, redeem it, save the property, take care of the, windows, uh, the widows. And so now Naomi is excited. Notice she doesn't seem so bitter and angry anymore. She's starting to perk up. Her spirits are starting to lift. She's excited. And she comes up with a plan. It's kind of a wacky plan you might see in a romantic comedy. She says, okay, here's what you're going to do, Ruth. Since Boaz is our guardian redeemer, put on your nice clothes. You know, wash up, get showered, put on some, some nice clothes, Get your hair done, makeup, put some nails on. And tonight when Boaz is sleeping, go and uncover his feet and then lie at his feet and then he will tell you what to do. And Ruth must have been like, that's so weird. <laughs> so it's risky and it could backfire. It could get in trouble. It's kind of odd, but Ruth agrees to do it because she trusts Naomi. And so she does, she, she washes up, Ruth washes up, she, she gets dressed, hair, makeup, and at night she walks through the town of Bethlehem, and she walks towards her future, and she must have been nervous and excited and emotional, but she keeps walking forward into the climax of act number two. It says that she, she gets there and he's sleeping and she does, she uncovers his feet and she lies at his feet. And at midnight, it says he woke up, he was startled and he sees this woman laying at his feet. And it says, who is this? And this scripture on screen, she says, it's, it's Ruth. It's your servant, Ruth. And she says, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Another Translation says, um, spread your wings over me. She's asking that he provides some covering, a covering of protection and provision. And in a way, she's proposing to him, or she's saying the answer is yes, if you want to step up and redeem the situation. Up until this point, up until this point, she would have been uh, wearing the plain and basic clothing of a widow who is mourning no makeup, no hair done. She's probably dirty and sweaty because she was gleaning all day. But now she's in these nice clothes. She's all done up and she's saying, I'm stepping out of my season of grieving and I'm stepping into a new season and I want you to be a part of it. And so Boaz responds and he says, I will do all that you ask. He says, I will do it. And so at this point in the story, it seems like everything is working out 
Seems like Boaz is going to step up and he's going to buy the land and marry Ruth. No complications. But it can't be that easy. Not in a good story, at least. In the structure of story, this next moment is called the setback. You can see it on your diagram. Uh, setback or the false defeat. And uh, Boaz reveals some information that adds some complications, and it's a bit of a setback. He says, I will do all that you ask. I'm up for that plan, but actually there's a relative who is closer than I am, and he has the first choice. He has the first dibs to buy the land and redeem the property and redeem the situation, and so it's possible that you could end up with him. But I'll tell you what, Boaz says, I will set up a meeting in the morning and in front of everyone I'll ask this other relative if he wants to step up and redeem the situation. And so Ruth goes home and at the end of Act 2 we are left wondering will the other relative step up or will and, and marry Ruth or will Boaz somehow figure out a way to redeem the situation. And that leads us into Act 3. We have a change in setting, and so change in picture. This is, um, setting is now the town gate of Bethlehem, right, right outside of Bethlehem. These are some ruins. But in the morning, Boaz sets up a meeting at the town gate because this is where meetings would take place. It was kind of the ancient equivalent of a courthouse. And he invites all those people. He, he invites the, the relative. He invites the, the elders of the town. He has everyone sit down and he breaks it down for him. And he asks the other relative. They never give him a name, so we can call him the no-name relative. He says, Naomi is going to sell her property and you're first in line. You know, so tell us in front of all these people, in front of these witnesses in this court, would you like to redeem the situation? Would you like to buy the land? redeem the property. And the other relative, the no-name relative, thinks about it for a bit. And he's like, okay, I'll do it. I'll redeem it. But Boaz responds, but there's a catch. When you buy the land, you also must take Ruth, the Moabite. And after hearing this, the no-name relative's like, no, I don't really want to do that. I don't want to marry the Moabite woman. It's going to mess with my inheritance. Uh, and he steps out. He bows out. He says, never mind. And so Boaz celebrates, and the elders celebrate. Everybody celebrates, and the tension dissipates. And the audience breathes a collective sigh of relief. This is called the, the descending action of the story. When all the loose ends are tied up, the tension begins to resolve. And all that is left is this closing scene called the denouement. On the chart, it looks like denouement, but I guess it has like French pronunciation. Denouement. It's this closing scene where we see what happens to the characters after, in the aftermath of the climax. It's this calm scene where we see, you know, what happens to them. In setting up this scene, the author tells us that Ruth and Boaz, they were married. So they were married. Ruth becomes pregnant she has a, a baby, it's a son, it's a boy. And then 
In this final scene, the camera pans back to Naomi. And all the ladies, all the women of the town gather around Naomi and they tell her how blessed she is and that she has an amazing daughter-in-law and she has a guardian redeemer and that God has provided. And this is what they, um, this is what it says on screen, verse 16. It says, then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the woman living there said, Naomi has a son. Right, Naomi has a son. It's interesting because it was Ruth who got married and Ruth who had the son, but these women say, Naomi has a son. You know, these women all knew Naomi. Some of them must have grown up with her. They saw her through the different stages of her life. They were invested in her story. They knew her when she was pleasant Naomi. They knew her when she was bitter Mara. And they saw her as she transitioned through the different stages of her transformation arc. And they saw as she as she transformed from bitter Mara back to pleasant Naomi again. So in this story, it starts with death and ends with life. It starts with a funeral and ends with a marriage. It starts with a famine and ends with God's provision. It starts with a tragedy and ends with a family. And it starts with Naomi feeling bitter, angry, hopeless. And in the end, she has hope restored. But if you look back at the story, Naomi almost gave up. If you look back at Act 1, she went back to the, the wasted up, abandoned farmhouse and she just tucked herself inside in her hermit shell and she festered in her bitterness and she succumbed to her sadness. She almost gave up in Act 1. And that doesn't make for a good story. Right? Do you know what doesn't make for a good story is something bad happens, an unfortunate event occurs an inciting incident, and then the character just gives up and crawls in her hermit shell and festers in her bitterness and succumbs to her sadness. It's not a good story that's boring and it's uninspiring and it doesn't reflect the transformative, restoring, healing power of God. God is calling us to grow and to change and to keep progressing and to keep moving forward and to keep following him, to not get stuck in the act one of our current situation. There's hope in act two and there's a story to be written. What we learn from this story of Ruth and from walking in her shoes is that there may be chapters in your life when you lose people. Your life may be uprooted. An unfortunate event may occur causing all kinds of instability and stress and disorder. You may go through a season in which it feels like like everything's been ripped away from you, causing you to feel empty, bitter, hopeless, wounded to your core, grieving the things of the past. But as you walk, as we walk in the shoes of Ruth, 
we step into shoes that just keep moving. As you walk in the shoes of Ruth, you walk in these shoes that just keep pressing on, that keep walking forward, right? She was wounded in Act 1. She was mourning and grieving and crying in Act 1. She was in the dreary Moab desert of Act 1. But she just keeps pressing on. She keeps walking in obedience. She keeps gleaning in the fields that God's provided because he is a God who provides. She keeps walking. She keeps pressing forward. She keeps working. She keeps following God in the direction that God is calling. She keeps walking through the different stages of her transformation arc. And she keeps walking until she sees the fullness of all that God has for her. And as she does, her life becomes this beautiful story that reflects the transformative, restoring, healing power of God, and that makes for a good story. And that makes for a good testimony. Let's pray. God, you know the stories of the people in this room. You know the wounds. You know the the flaws. You know the things that we have to overcome. You know the things that are holding us back. God, I pray that we would be a people who would learn to surrender. Whatever is that that's holding us back, whether it's bitterness, whether it's anger, whether it's a false belief that we tell about ourselves. And I pray that we would trust you as we move forward, that we would follow after you, and that we would not get stuck in our act one. that we would follow you through the different stages of the transformation arc because you are a transforming God. You turn our sorrow into story. You turn our pain into praise. And I, I, pray, I do pray that, that as we step forward, it would be like worship, that we would worship you as we step forward, that we would praise you with each step. We would praise you with each step of obedience as we follow after you as we are guided after you, as we move on, as we step past our depression, past our bitterness, past our anger, past the things holding us back. As we look to how, what Ruth modeled, I pray that we would step on those shoes, those shoes that just keep moving forward in the direction that you're calling to see the fullness of the story that you want to write on our lives. Holy Spirit, come and speak to each one of us. I pray that we be open to hear, open to follow, moldable, pliable, obedient. Lord, we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You know, at the end of the book of Ruth, the author actually pulls back, he zooms out, to see a larger context of the story in the form of a genealogy. And the genealogy shows that Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David. 
and therefore she is an ancestor of Jesus, the ultimate redeemer. It all comes back to Jesus, the one who leads us through the ultimate arc of redemption and restoration, who leads us from death to life, from darkness to light. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. So the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember him. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray again. So God, we thank you. We thank you for what you've done and what you've provided. We thank you for your faithfulness and how you've even been there when we didn't think you were and we we didn't know you were working in our lives. As you continue to work, I pray that you would work on us through the process of whatever change and the growth and the transformation that only you are able to lead us through. And so we thank you for what you're doing and what you're about to do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.